Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Bad on Paper Podcast. I'm Becca Freeman. And I'm Olivia Mentor. And today we're going to rip our skin off and talk about the books that we're writing. Oh, it does kind of feel like that, doesn't it? (laughs) It does feel like that. It's time. We're planting a stake in the ground. We're writing books. Oh, we are. And we're going to talk about it. (laughs) But before we get into it, this episode is sponsored by Retold Recycling, a convenient mail-based service for recycling old and unwanted textiles. Go to retoldrecycling.com and get 10% off with code BOP10 on all retold bags to make recycling a part of your summer cleanup. Tell me about your high this week. This I feel like there's lots of fun stuff to discuss. My high was my trip to London. It was fantastic. It looked wonderful. It was it was great. It felt so good to travel. It was actually perfect because Rachel was there for a conference and I was tagging along. So I basically had the full day to myself, but then I had people, Rachel and then our friend Jess lives in London to hang out with at night. So I had like fun plans every night. And then during the day, I would just take a 10 mile walk and like wander around places. That's the best. How was the weather? The weather was perfect. It was literally everything about it was perfect. And, you know, it was also nice to go to London because it's a place I've been many times. So there wasn't this like pressure to do everything, see everything. It's somewhere I've been many times. It's somewhere I'll go back to. So it was very casual. Like one day I walked through Hyde Park and I walked up to Little Venice where I'd never been. And then I walked over to King Cross and had lunch in this new shopping complex there. Another day I walked to the south bank of the river and I walked all along the river and then up through Soho. It was great. Like I literally just walked around and shopped a little. I didn't go to a museum. i I saw Big Ben from the outside, but I didn't do anything purposefully touristy. It was great. It was like my ideal, my ideal trip. It sounds perfect. That honestly sounds like my ideal trip as well. Like not packing in a bunch of touristy things, just kind of observing the city and being in it. We had great meals. Yeah, it was, it was fantastic. I love London. By the end, I was like, I want to move to London. How do I move to London? Does a British person want to marry me? You could move there for six months without a work visa. You could. I'll visit. I mean, I would like to. We'll see. We'll see what. (laughs) I feel like every episode we're like, where will Becca move? Philly, London, Boston. I'm not moving anywhere. I'm staying in New York. (laughs) Uh, Part of me is like, well, maybe I should just like move to London for six months if I have to find a new place. But putting all my stuff in storage would be so annoying. So expensive, too. So expensive. So this is one of those things where it's like you go on vacation. You're like, I want to move here. Oh, yeah. I do that everywhere I go, basically. <laughs> but if I, ha- if I had to move somewhere else and it was feasible to move there, like London would be my top choice. Okay, great. Well, I am going to London at the end of July, so I'll have to get your recommendations for food and stuff. Oh, I have a lot. I put everything that was a favorite thing in the out of office app because I'm figuring that people are going to ask me. And so then it's just there and it's self-service and you can just grab. Those are my like top things of places we ate and things we did. And so. Okay. I'll check it out there for sure. Yeah. What about you? So mine was our trip to Iceland. It was great. It was, I, I don't know what I was expecting about the country. Like I obviously knew it was beautiful, but it was somehow so different than I thought it would be. Like even the country is somehow very organized. Like everything is so beautiful and perfect and clean. It kind of feels like a simulation. (laughs) Like it just. I didn't realize that you guys were getting an Airbnb and staying in the middle of nowhere. 
Yeah. So actually the whole trip was kind of planned around the Airbnb because when I found it, this was the only weekend that it was not booked for the rest of the year. And I was like, I guess I got to I guess I got to do it. And it was in this kind of specific part of Iceland. Like our, the nearest town to us was about a 20 minute drive and it was like 223 people population. Oh my God. Yeah. So (laughs) it was really interesting to kind of explore that area. But honestly, there's so much to see, so much more than I realized that I felt a little bit overwhelmed. But it was wonderful. It's so gorgeous, crazy beautiful. It looked incredible. And you also, you ate more (laughs) hot dogs seemingly than I would have (laughs) predicted. Yes. So this was not a, usually when Jake and I travel, it's like a very food heavy experience. Like we research all the restaurants, but this was more like we're going to be in the middle of nowhere. So we'll get a couple, you know, things Iceland is known for, which is like weird things like fermented shark, which I was not going to attempt. But one of the things were these hot dogs. You're supposed to order them with everything, which is a special kind of sweet, spicy mustard, this thing that looks like gravy, a ketchup that is sweetened with apples. So it tastes a little bit different. And then the thing that really takes it to the next level is both raw onions and fried onions. Okay. So it is an experience that really takes a toll on your body, but they're really cheap. They're available at every gas station, which for our Airbnb, the only food like restaurant we had nearby was the gas station. So we basically cooked all of our food and then we had a couple random meals. But other than the cooking at home, mostly it was hot dogs. And how are you? What are your feelings on hot dogs outside of Icelandic vacations? Are you like a hot dog fan? I don't eat hot dogs regularly, but every now and then I just have a craving for one and then I cannot get it out of my brain. Like, At a baseball game, got to get a hot dog. At a barbecue, I love a hot dog with ketchup and mustard and relish. But like I never am just cooking them at home. (laughs) Sure, sure. How how do you feel about hot dogs? I – well, I feel complicated about hot dogs. I would say that I would not eat a hot dog. (laughs) I I, like saw a documentary once about it and like I'm like, oh, hot dogs are vile. (laughs) And I would be like, I will not have a hot dog. However, if you put a plate of pigs in a blanket in front of me – I would eat 30. So I clearly have complex feelings about hot dogs and I'm like, don't have a stick to itness of like not eating them. Okay. Well, if you ever go to Iceland, I think you got to get one. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. What about Lowe's? Okay. So back to the town of 223 people, we got a flat tire. This was about 4 PM on a Friday. We had driven all over God's green earth looking for this thermal hot spring. We literally found it finally turned into the parking lot is a generous description, but (laughs) turned into the parking area and immediately our tires started deflating. So we had to move the car off the hill, which I didn't even know you're supposed to do when you get a flat tire. I I have learned that I know nothing about flat tires, but Jake was like, okay, I'm going to change it to the spare He doesn't have the right tools, so I had to go hunt down another person, which luckily we were at this hot spring, so there were a few other, like, tourists there. This feels like the beginning of either a (laughs) rom-com or a thriller. Could be either. You know, I experienced all of those emotions, highs and lows, in this endeavor. Anyway, so eventually he gets the tool working, and then I have to call a car repair shop because also I did not know you can't actually drive on a spare tire for more than like 50 miles. So we had to go get it repaired, 
Thank God there was a car repair place in this town of 220 people. I called them at 4.15. They closed at 5. And I was like freaking out. But the complicated part of all of this was that I had to describe to them where I was, what town I was in. And also I had to confirm that they were in the town that we were near. And I literally cannot pronounce these. Oh, my God. (laughs) Icelandic towns. I even Googled before I called the pronunciation, like to, to have Google like play it for me so I could imitate it. No, my mouth, my tongue, my body does not work that way. I cannot pronounce the words. So I had to be like, do you, are you located in the town that begins with the letter B? <laughs> like, that's like the best that we could do. I'm like, I'm 10 miles north of you. The town begins with an S. And it was just Everyone speaks English, but I underestimated how difficult it would be to pronounce things like that. Anyway, all in all, we fixed it. We got there at 4.50. They they fixed the tire. And, you know, it's been a while since something had gone wrong. So it was a learning experience. But at the time, it was a tad bit stressful. I can see that. Yeah. Do you know how to change a tire? I used to know how to change a tire when I had a car, and I I believe that I have done it a couple of times, but present day, if I had to change one, I I could probably do it with a YouTube video, but Hmm. I would be in a a bad sitch. That's better than me. My default reaction was like, okay, we got to call the car service people. Jake was like, no, you can just change the tire. I was like, what? Anyway, tell me about your low. (laughs) Let me tell you about sexy Oklahoma. (laughs) Which maybe isn't a true low, but it is a funny story that I mean it has to underperformed be. <laughs> relative to my expectations. Okay. So when we were going to London, Rachel and I wanted to get tickets to see some type of theater. Last time I was in London, we saw six. And, you know, we were like, oh, let's let's see what's in the West End. So we got tickets to to Oklahoma. And apparently it was in the US in 2019. It won a Tony for Best Revival. And it was very buzzy. People were calling it sexy Oklahoma. And we were like, this sounds, this sounds fun. We told our friend Jess, who lives there, and her sister-in-law is an actress and had heard great things about it. The night before we were going, she was like, oh, I'm so excited about this. Apparently, Stalker Channing and Eddie Redmayne both saw it there this week. And she'd seen like, oh, I don't know, Daily Mail, like photos or whatever of them there. So we had pretty high expectations going in. <laughs> well, Olivia. It was not what we expected. The first thing I'd like to tell you is it wasn't in a theater as much as it was in like a school gymnasium. It looked like you were in a uh, like a boardroom for, yeah, like a gym. Yeah, it looked like we were in a gym. It was so bright. Like it was operating theater bright. It stayed that bright the whole time. Like there was no dimming of the lights. And this was a creative choice. This was a creative choice. So it was so bright. There's there's basically like bleachers on both sides, and then there were these four folding tables set up along the perimeter. We were seated at one of these folding tables. I did see the folding table, and I was immediately like, this cannot be the musical. So but- we go in, and on these folding tables are cans of Bud Light and crock pots. And the woman who sat us was like, please don't touch anything. You Don't put your drinks on the table. Like, it's for the actors. And we were like, okay. We were like in the play. We were in the play. For a good 20 minutes, a man was laying on the table. The table was like 
the same distance from you as if you were at a restaurant. Like it was, we were at this table. There's a man laying on it. How are you not laughing the whole time? We, we totally had the church giggles. He also had just sang. And so he was so out of breath. He was like catching his breath and his like arm is right there. I was like, I've had sex less intimate than this. Like it was, it was like so intimate. And then also there was like the cast kept interacting with the people at the tables and like they would like touch them or like. Oh my God. So not So uncomfortable. It yeah, it was so unique. it was it was unique. It was in in our opinion bad. Many other people say it was good, so I don't know that I'm the authority here, but it was so bad. Rachel wanted to leave at intermission and I was like, I don't think we can leave. Like we're it would be yeah. so noticeable if we left. You got to stay because who knows what he's going to do on that table next, you know? So we stayed. It got more confusing. There was like a 10-minute dance interlude. I don't know. It was quite bad. And yet everything you're saying is making me want to have this experience too. Oh, oh. just so I can say I did. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, all right. Let's take an ad break. One of the absolute best habits I've developed in the past year has been regular closet cleanouts. Every month I put a day on my calendar, I go through my closet, I go through my dresser, and I ask myself questions about the items that are overflowing out of the drawers or my closet. I ask myself, am I really ever going to wear that dress that I bought two years ago that has the tag still on it? Or do I really need to keep the pair of jeans that hasn't fit me in years? Forcing myself to assess my wardrobe month after month has helped me be better about letting things go that I don't actually wear or need. But that doesn't mean that I always know what to do with the items that I've decided to part with. That's why I'm so excited to have discovered Retold Recycling. Retold is a convenient mail-based service for recycling old and unwanted textiles without having to drag them to the donation center, sort them based on reusability, or worry about further contributing to the landfill problem. The process is pretty simple. After ordering your retold bags, the company sends you pre-labeled and postage-paid bags that you can fill with your unwanted textiles and then drop off at the post office. From there, retold sorts through the items. The clothing in good condition goes to thrift stores, and the rest, aka the stuff that would usually end up in a landfill, is recycled or upcycled. Unusable clothing and textile scraps are either given to upcyclers or are made into a pulp which is used for things such as insulation for houses or the inside of car seats. And for me, after I do those monthly closet cleanouts, I usually sell some of my clothes that are still in good condition on secondhand selling apps, but I always struggle to know what to do with the other stuff. Take uncomfortable underwear, for example. I'm a firm believer in the fact that getting rid of uncomfortable underwear just makes your life and your wardrobe better altogether, but they're not exactly an item that you can just donate to a thrift store. Retold recycling solves that problem. Now I keep two giant wicker baskets in my office. One of them I fill with items I'm going to sell, and the other one I fill with items that I want to donate or recycle through retail recycling. Once the basket is full, I fill up my retail bag and drop it off at the post office. It's super simple, and it makes me feel so much better than dropping off a giant trash bag of clothes at a thrift store without knowing if the clothing will end up in someone else's closet or the more likely option in a landfill. If you're interested in decluttering your wardrobe in a more sustainable way too, go to retoldrecycling.com and get 10% off with code BOP10. 
It's time to make recycling a part of your summer cleanup. That's R-E-T-O-L-D recycling.com slash B-O-P. So let's get into this episode. So this is the appetizer to a series of episodes that we would like to do this summer. I thought it would be cool because we are both writing books if we took people through the process of how a book gets made. Because until I was in this process, I personally did not know a lot of the idiosyncrasies about how publishing works. And I find it pretty fascinating as a reader, not just as somebody going through it. So our plan is to have on an agent, an editor, and a marketer uh, and kind of go through the process over the course of three episodes of how a book gets made. But first, we thought we should tell you a little bit about our experience writing the books. <laughs> yeah, it's, I feel, I have to say, I'm, I feel kind of like a fraud because Me too. I, it's, it's difficult. But I also keep telling myself that I feel like most readers are writers in some way or have dreamed about writing a book or have an idea. And so I actually, I'm just trying to tell myself if I was someone listening, I would like listening to this, regardless of whether or not the person talking about their book thought that they should be talking about it to others. I also think it's interesting just to understand what goes into it from the author side of things. Absolutely. Yeah. I still have so much to learn, to, to be honest. But before we get into all of the specifics about our experience with writing books, I guess we should talk about what our books are about in a very brief way, because we don't want to talk about this ad nauseum for the next however many years these books are with us. Yeah, I don't feel comfortable going too in-depth right now. Um, the reason being that I haven't sold it yet, so I, I want to, I don't know, keep my mouth shut until I, until I can sell it. And uh, the second thing is, at this point, based on the way the publishing industry moves, I don't think my book would come out at the earliest until 2024. And I just feel like people would be sick of hearing about it for the next two years. So I'm going to save some details. But what I can tell you is I'm writing a fiction book. It's um, a Christmas book. And it's about a group of four friends who are all alone on Christmas for different reasons and have forged a tradition of spending the holiday together. The A story is actually a friendship story, which I think is surprising to a lot of people who expect it to be a rom-com based on what I've done with rom-com pods, but it's not. And then there is a romance story as as the B story. And mine is a thriller. It centers around a woman who grew up in a cult <laughs> in central Florida. And that's all I will say. It's a thriller. It's told from two perspectives. And yeah, I too feel very strange talking about it because I don't know what will happen with it. Obviously, I would love for it to be bought and published, but yeah, we'll see. Well, instead of talking about the particulars about our books, let's talk about the process. So I guess I'm curious to know if you always wanted to write a book and if you've ever done anything previously as like a setup to this, like have you written much fiction? So in terms of always wanting to write a book, I think that for me, the the concept of being an author kind of in a lot of ways seemed like the concept of being like an editor at like a fashion magazine or website when I was in college. It just kind of seemed like something very distant, very much for other people. 
very kind of like, I don't even know how that would begin, how that would happen. But I think if I really asked myself deep down, did I always know that I wanted to be a writer and write a book? Yes. I have not written much fiction. I did take a creative writing class in college, which I really enjoyed, but that's about it. (laughs) What about you? I have always wanted to write a book, but it's kind of felt like in a far off bucket list way. It hasn't necessarily been something that I plan to do on a five-year plan or that I thought would be my career. I'll tell you one, I don't know if I've ever told this story on the podcast, but one way that I knew I wanted to be an author is because of my seething jealousy. So when I was 23, I just graduated college, this book came out and I'm so embarrassed because I know she follows me on Instagram, but I don't know if she listens to the podcast. So this book came out called Girls in White Dresses by Jennifer Close. There was a huge mix-up around this. So the actual author, Jennifer Close, went to Boston College, which is the same college I went to, but she's a few years older than me. There was another girl also named Jennifer Close in my class, and I have confirmed via LinkedIn that they are not the same person. (laughs) But even in like the class notes on the BC website, it misattributes the author, Jennifer Close, to being the one that graduated in my class, not whatever class she graduated in. And so I was under the impression that it was this girl who I had just graduated with. We were 23. So, you know, we're two years out of college. And I was under the impression that she was the one that wrote that book. And I was awash in jealousy. I remember like just going on a tirade to my friend Ashley. And I really specifically remember that the author, the about the author paragraph said something about the fact that it was like, Jennifer Close has lived in DC and worked in journalism for many years. And I was like, Jennifer Close hasn't done anything for many years. Like Jennifer (laughs) Close has like worn a bra for many years. Like she's like two years out of college. She hasn't done anything. And I was so jealous of it that like in hindsight, I'm like, well, yeah, because like you wanted this for yourself. Yeah. I I can totally relate to that. And now we DM and I like, and I'm like, one time I hated you. Hi, Jennifer Close. But it wasn't actually, it was a misunderstanding. <laughs> it was the, the other version of you, the other Jennifer Close. <laughs> Who doesn't even, like, doesn't even work in an adjacent field. I don't know. That just, <laughs> it was a me problem. It was about me. It was nothing about anyone else. I totally get that because having worked at a publication, naturally a lot of the editors that I worked with have published books. And as I got older and more into like my mid twenties, I was like, damn it. Like, how do you do that? Like, that must be the best feeling in the entire world. And then I eventually came to the conclusion, like, why don't you just try? (laughs) (laughs) Sounds so simple when you put it that way. I don't, why don't you just try? Actually, the, the thing that really pushed me to finally just like put all of the fear or Dow aside and just try was my mom. She likes to say this thing about books. Sometimes she's going to hate that I'm saying this, but like, oh, I could have written that about whatever book she thinks is. And I'm like, well, have you? <laughs> like, but you didn't write the book and you're not making money from the book. And so it just kind of made me think about all the books I love differently and the books I enjoy and like what why do I think I couldn't do that? You know, but what was the thing that finally made you start just pushing ahead and putting something together? Well, I always said that one of the biggest things that was stopping me was that I didn't have an idea that I thought was, that I thought was good enough or that I I was excited enough about. And in 2020, I had been reading a bunch of Christmas books. I always read a lot of Christmas books and people Anytime I put up a question box, 
people were asking like, what Christmas books do you recommend? And I was like, I've already told you all of the ones I recommend. Like there's like four of them. Other than that, I find most Christmas books to be way too sweet. Like they're a little too tropey. Somebody's always a baker. You know, like they're, they're just, they're really sweet by nature. And I don't love that. Like I, I much prefer the one day in December type that's a little more messy and angsty. And you know, so I, I had a list of like four Christmas books I liked and I just kept getting asked for more, more, more. And it was just making me think like, okay, what type of Christmas book would I want to read? And I I can't remember how I came up with the idea, but I like came up with this idea. And I remember telling Rachel about it and she was like, yeah, that's a good idea. It stuck around. Like, I think it's, I think it might be something that Shonda Rhimes has said maybe in her book or in her masterclass. I don't know. But she said something about how she doesn't write down ideas because if an idea is meant to be, it will stick around and bother her. And like, that's what this idea did. Like I couldn't stop thinking about it. And so finally, after a month of kicking it around in my brain, I finally just sat down one day and started writing. With no outline. No outline. So we have this in common. (laughs) Oh, I, I regret it. I don't know. I don't know if I regret it. I didn't make an outline. I think with rom-com pods, we always have a really detailed outline because we're doing it with another person. So you have to have a shared vision. And so I think to me, it felt really novel and freeing to do it without an outline. However, it's a long road. And so I feel like it really bit me in the butt multiple times not having an outline. At the same time, there's definitely a lot of turns it took that surprised me that I don't know that I would have come up with if I was outlining. So I don't know if it's good or bad, but like there were definitely times in the middle where I was like, wow, I freaking wish I had an outline. And for whatever reason, I like couldn't make myself stop and write the outline. It just was like mental block against it. Yeah, I feel exactly the same. I almost had to take it one sentence at a time, literally. Like I was like, I can't think about this too much. I can't overthink this. I'm just going to go sentence to sentence, word to word and put something together. And like, it was just interesting because the plot and the characters just sort of started to form that way. Of course, there's still a lot of problems. I feel the need to to preface everything I say with like, there are still major plot holes. <laughs> it's not perfect. I would venture to say I might this week feel the worst I have ever felt about my book and the writing process. I do too, which is why when I knew we were doing this episode, I was like, oh my God, Wait, what are you doing, Olivia? Which is interesting because I'll get ahead of myself a little bit. Like I'm on kind of the third draft and it's getting better every draft. And so I'm like, it was worse six months ago, but you felt fine about it. And now you're like, it's better than it was. But I'm like, it's terrible. This is why I didn't want to do an outline because I think that the bigger it is, the like the more you have to sort of assess, the more intimidating it is. So even though it is getting better, it's like you become more and more aware of the issues where if you're just taking it sentence to sentence, chapter to chapter, you're like, I don't know, I'll figure that out in you know, the next page. And I don't have to worry about that right now because it's completely non-existent at the moment. Wait, what about you? What was the thing that made you finally start writing? Well, <laughs> I wrote down on a plane many years ago on a note on the notes app on my phone, the sentence that I thought would be an interesting start to a book, which is not even in the book anymore <laughs> that I've written, but I just was like, oh, that'd be a very, that would hook me if, as a reader if I read it. It's like a little weird, like a little creepy, kind of how I like books in general. And it just sat in my notes app for probably like four, 
to six years. And then I started writing July 2020. It also this podcast, this episode is making me realize how long this process has been and it's kind of overwhelming. But um, I just put the sentence down and then started building off of it. I think because I just wanted a creative project. I wanted something to distract me from the stress of the pandemic. I had a lot of downtime, obviously. And I was doing a book club with my mom and my aunts and some other people. And it was just very interesting to me to hear people talk about books and what they liked and what they didn't. For some reason, that just made me think, why not? You know, there's going to be someone that likes it and someone that hates it anyway. (laughs) And I should at least attempt it. Since it's not going in the book, can you tell us the sentence or are you still saving it for something in the future? No, I'm too I'm too shy about it, but um, I know what the sentence is. <laughs> yeah, it's very specific, but yeah, I'm still this is the thing about writing a book or first draft or creative writing. It is the most vulnerable thing. And it's so vulnerable. I am It's intense. I am having the hardest time letting anyone else into this process, which I know will make it better getting feedback and you know, getting other people's ideas. And I just feel, it feels like wearing your skin on the outside. No, that's the opposite. It feels like wearing your outsides on, your insides on your outside. What am I (laughs) trying to say? It It feels like you're just standing naked before a room of people talking about your feelings is really what it it feels like to me. Yeah. And it's not even about telling them about your feelings. It's just about, for me, I think it's about having something to prove because I've never written a book before. So there's nothing to say that I can do this. So to show somebody the shitty in-between version before it's good feels like really scary to be like, hey, here's the hack version that like we all have to trust we'll get there. Yeah. It's literally terrifying. It's so intimate. Something about it. I've written for the internet for my entire career and had people say they don't like what I write and about personal things that are about me and how I feel about myself and my body. And somehow this is so much scarier in every possible way. Did you ever doubt that you would finish that first draft or that like, did you have, I had so many moments where I was like positive. I was going to abandon it and never see it again. What about you? No, no. I, I think that, you know, by the time I'd written for like two weeks, I was like, okay, I'm doing this. This is something I've always wanted to do. And I want to see it through to the end there were definitely times I wanted to quit because like, God, this is so hard, but I don't think there was any time where I was like, yeah, I'm going to, that I actually thought I would let myself quit. That's a good sign. I think. (laughs) Well, we'll see. (laughs) Okay. So tell me about what your writing routine was like. How did you get into the groove of writing every day? Did you write every day? I didn't write every day. I found the first draft process really hard. And I, I know that I need to give myself some grace because I was doing this amid like six other things. So I started writing in the end of December of 2020. And then from January to March, we were working on writing showmance. Then from March to June, we were, we were working on post-production. Then from March to June, we were also working on the script for Bone Mary Berry. And then from June to September, we were working on post-production. So I like had other creative projects going. I also had one to two consulting clients and was working on this podcast the whole time too. So like it wasn't, I know that I need to give myself grace. And when I say that out loud, I'm like, oh yeah, like this makes sense. But I tried to write, my ideal would be that I wrote 
five days a week in the morning from 9.30 to 11.30, and that my word goal was a 1,000 words per session. Sometimes I was really diligent about that, and other times there were, like, full months where I didn't write anything. And I think it was really scary, too, because the other thing is that I kept wanting to go back to the beginning and start to edit or fix it. So there were a lot of times where I feel like I, like, went back. Like, I changed the tense 9 million times as opposed to just pushing through. Yeah, I think that's the natural impulse is to go back. And I didn't either. Well, I didn't. I I kept wanting to, but I pushed through anyway. (laughs) What was your routine? I would wake up for a while, for the first maybe year or so. And I had the same thing as you, by the way, where I would write like every day for months and then I'd go two or three months without even looking at it, which is why it probably took me a year and a half to finish it. But I would write for either a thousand words or an hour. I went back and forth between those two. They kind of worked out to being about the same usually before I did anything else in the day. So this is before I started my morning reading. So I would just basically wake up and get coffee and go straight to my desk and just like not think about anything and just write. So that that makes sense for you because you're a morning person. I actually don't feel like morning is probably my best time, but I learned that I had to do it in the morning because if I didn't, other work stuff would start getting in the way and it wouldn't ever happen. And I'm definitely not going to or able to do it at night. Like my brain just doesn't work that well at night. So yeah, I feel like if I were ever, there's this fictitious future writer version of me. (laughs) If this were the only thing I did, Mm -hmm. I would probably, that would not be my writing routine. But I was like, this is the only way to get it done. Yeah, I I find writing to be the most daunting task in terms of like grading creatively writing fiction. Like it's a thing that I can build up in my brain to be the hardest. So if I have other obligations, people are emailing me all of that. I just, I can't do it. But on the flip side, I get more energy from it than anything else. Oh, interesting. I would finish writing a thousand words and be like, I could potentially take over the world today. Oh, wow. (laughs) even if they were bad it would feel so it would just make me so happy which oh wow yeah how did the process of writing your first draft compare to your expectations I I found it to be a lot more fun than I oh thought it was it was as hard as I thought it would be and I thought it would be nearly impossible but I didn't expect it to feel like um I didn't expect it to feel like reading feels where you're like in another world For some reason, I thought it would be much more like work feels to me, like freelance writing, but it felt really just fun to discover the characters and the places and to like very much just let myself like dissolve into that different space. Like it felt just great, but very hard. (laughs) What about you? That was not my experience. Maybe this means (laughs) this shouldn't be what I'm doing. No, no. It felt way harder than I expected. I... I think I went into it with bad expectations, like false, faulty expectations. I mean, first of all, like NaNoWriMo, which is National Novel Writing Month, is this program that happens every November. And there's like an online community and people write the first draft of a book in a month. And it's it's a short first draft. Like I think the goal is to get to 55,000 words. And I know that's how Jasmine Guillory wrote her first book. I think it might... Emily Henry might have written her first book that way. Like, there's a lot of authors who've talked about NaNoWriMo on this podcast or, you know, in their general author stories. And so I really thought that it should be something that was much quicker to do. 
And then I've also read a lot of authors saying that they, they like write a first draft in 90 days. And that was <laughs> not my experience at all. Oh, no, it was, it, it took longer. It was so much harder. And I think one thing I've really struggled with the entire time, which I, I don't, I haven't struggled with as much in other parts of my career or my life is comparison where, mm-hmm. you know, because I read so much, I'm, I'm comparing everything to other people's final drafts. And I just kept finding what I was writing wanting because I was comparing my first draft to somebody's final draft. And it was just, it was a lot harder than I expected it to be. Yeah. It is insanely difficult. It's also, it's it's also the first time that I've created anything like this without another person. Like whenever we've done rom-com pods, it's been with another person. And you know, when you get stuck, it's somebody else's problem too. Or you like, you both have to work at it or you have to brainstorm it together. And so this felt really different. And I'm actually really excited to have an agent because like, I need somebody in the trenches with me. Yeah. I feel like the, the, the biggest thing is just getting someone to say, okay, this is good. I believe in you. And until you have that, it's absolutely not terrifying. Even, not even that. It just to be like, okay, I, I have this problem that I need to talk out. Yeah, that that's true. Has Jake read anything? He read the first maybe 10,000 words. Mine is like almost 90,000. So it's, and it still needs a lot of writing, but after those first, and it was still terrifying even to have Jake read it. Honestly, it just, it was a lot. Let's take a quick ad break. Today's episode is sponsored by Night, a brand that exists at the intersection of beauty and sleep using textiles to solve your sleep woes. As you might know, if you follow me on Instagram, or I just told you at the top of this podcast, I just got back from London. And let me tell you, There is one thing that can instantly remind me of how much I adore my Night Tri-Silk Luxe pillowcases. It's going without them. What a bummer it was to wake up with bedhead every day, and I could feel it in my skin, too. Like, honestly, the biggest difference was my hair when I went back to sleeping on a traditional pillowcase. And with all the traveling I've been doing lately as well, I can totally relate to this. For me, making sure I have like a relaxing, peaceful, and easy night's sleep is probably one of the most important steps for managing my travel anxiety. I make sure I can access my white noise playlist on my phone. I always have a cold glass of water and a book nearby to comfort me. You you get the general idea. But it occurred to me on this last trip that I might need to also start traveling with my night chill pillowcase. Even in Iceland, I found myself feeling warmer than usual and sleeping worse without my chill pillowcase. And given that some studies show that warmer temperatures can actually really disrupt your REM cycle, it kind of makes sense. I've been using my night tri-silk pillowcase for years now, and I can honestly say it's one of the best investments I've made, not only for my sleep, but also for my hair and skin. So if you're ready to upgrade your pillowcases too, go to discovernight.com and use code BADONPAPER, all one word, for 20% off almost everything on their site, including all of their pillowcases. Again, that's discovernight.com with code BADONPAPER for 20% off. If you could go back to your f- first draft process and change one single thing about how you approached it, what what would you change, if anything? Oh, I would change a lot. I, I think the one thing that would probably be most helpful would be to just never look backwards 
and just keep going because there were many times where I started to futz with the first few chapters or I changed the tense. And so I think just keep going and then loop back. Yeah. I think that's super, super helpful. What about you? What would you change? I think I would try harder to be more consistent with it because it brought me so much joy and inspiration and energy to be doing it every day. But the second I fell out of it, it was the hardest thing in the world to get back into it. I just wish that I had pushed myself to be a little bit more consistent. But, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. I guess. Tell me about resources you used beforehand or during that helped you. I basically had no resources beforehand. I didn't look up anything other than like, how do you format a book in a Word document? (laughs) And how long is a thriller on average? And then like I looked up the word count of some of the books that I like. But other than that, pretty much nothing. About midway through the process, I subscribed to Kate McKean's agent, Agents and Books newsletter slash Substack. And that I found to be very helpful for the ins and outs and publishing and agents, but also just to see how many other people are writing books <laughs> and having the same questions that I'd had was really just helped me give me a lot of perspective and confidence. What about you? I feel like I read a, a lot of things before enduring. So before this, when we started Rom-Com Pods, the most helpful thing was Save the Cat, which is a screenwriting book. And there is a follow-up to it called Save the Cat Writes a Novel. And I'd already read the novel one when we were writing Rom-Com Pods because there was more to it than the screenwriting one. And also because I was more familiar with the references versus like, I'm not super familiar with The Godfather or, you know, some of these very male movies that they were talking about in Save the Cat. So both of those books are really helpful for story structure. There's also one called Story Genius, which is kind of about tying character motivations to plot, which I really like wanted to resist, but it is a really good book to read and the advice in it is really good. It's just like hard (laughs) to, to do what they're saying, but that was really helpful. Bird by Bird by Anne Lamott feels like talking to your like kind of kooky older neighbor who like has a lot of wisdom. And I found that book to be really helpful. She has this one essay in particular, and I think you can find it online. I think it's reproduced. I don't even think you need to buy the book, but it's called On Shitty First Drafts. And it's just basically about, and it's often quoted advice summarized from that, but it's like just how all first drafts suck. And knowing that was really helpful. And and every conversation I've had with authors has confirmed that. But, you know, for some reason you want to believe that everyone else was like brilliant on the first go round. (laughs) Um, so that was really helpful. I also found the tips on Emily Henry has some writing highlights. Hannah Orenstein has some writing highlights. I I don't know if Jasmine Guillory has highlights or if she just does Q and A's, but I found all of those three people's writing advice on their Instagrams to be really helpful. And then more recently, I discovered a podcast that I'm finding to be incredibly helpful and it's called the shit no one tells you about writing. And it comes out like three times a week. So it's a lot of content, but they do, they do a couple things. So the first thing they do is, uh, they have a name for it, but I can't remember what it's called, but they like review query letters, which is the letter you write to get representation from an agent. And they critique those and they critique the first five pages of people's drafts. And I have learned an incredible amount through that. And they also do just interviews with authors and I found that are very technical and about writing. And I found those to be really, really valuable. I feel like I need all of those. 
<laughs> you should listen to the to the podcast. It's really it's a lot of content, but it's really really helpful. Okay, cool. I I definitely definitely will. What is the single most important piece of advice you would give someone who wants to write a book? It's kind of like a distant thought or goal, but it feels like they can't for, you know, X, Y, Z reason. I think you just have to do it. The, the most important piece of advice that I consumed, I don't know that I have advice of my own to give. I saw this on Jasmine Guillory's Instagram story, and it's a quote from Eve Ewing, who's an author. It was from her Instagram Somebody in a question box asked her, do you ever get tripped up by how bad you think your first draft is? And her answer was, no, all my first drafts are bad. They always have been and always will be bad. If you stir flour and sugar and eggs into a bowl and look at it and say, this doesn't look like anything, it's bad and I quit, you never get to eat cake. You have to have faith that if you put it into the oven, it can be something else. I love that so much. And I found that fucking mind-blowing. Yeah. That really resonated with me where I was like, oh, yeah. Of course. Yeah. Well, I think you just, you don't see the in-between stages, like you said. Like, you don't see the 5,000 first drafts, the middle drafts, the times where you have writer's block. You just see the final book and someone's name on the cover and it feels amazing. But it's, it's, it's not that simple at all. What about you? What, do you have any advice that you either can give or received? For me, what I would say to someone else is the thing that I kept telling myself and kind of helped me keep going was like, you don't have to sell this. Of course, that's always the goal, but you don't have to sell this. You don't have to even show this to anyone. All you have to do is keep writing. Like you just have to put one sentence next to the other and have fun with it. And that's part of why I didn't make an outline is because I was like, I'm not going to build this up to be something else. I'm just going to see if I can do it. And as you write, you gradually gain more confidence And sometimes you don't have that confidence, but it's better than it was to begin with. And just reality check, how long did it take you to write a first draft? It took me from July 2020 to basically the end of December 2021. It's like 18 months. Yes. What about you? 12 months. I I started in the week between Christmas and New Year's of 2020, and I finished the week between Christmas and New Year's of 2021. It's pretty impressive. Well, there was a lot of time wasting in there, so I think it could have gone a lot faster. (laughs) I went for this episode. I went to look at my, I kept a doc, which I think is a tip I got from either, I believe her name is Jessica Goodman or Hannah Orenstein. I can't remember to like keep track of how much you write every day. And so I'm looking at it now and it's like for all of 2020, I wrote, it was only 22,000 words and then the rest came, but there were some lulls, man, long lulls. Same. So where are you now in the process? You are working on your second draft. Like, how do you feel about things? Please give me some inspiration to keep going because I'm struggling. So I'm, I'm kind of on a third draft. So one of the biggest problems is that I do not quite know how it ends. So there's a temporary ending on there that just is like completely unsatisfying. And so I need to do a lot more work on the ending. So in my second draft... I, I kind of like wrote up to 85% and then I like got to the edge of the cliff and I was like, oh, not a good day for skydiving. And then I went back to the beginning. And so now I'm halfway through my third draft. So like the beginning is on draft three. The ending is on draft one. So this time I have to go all the way through and like really spend time on the ending. And I've been hoping that like some something, some brain flash will come 
and I will figure out the ending. And I figured out a couple of things about it, but I like, I haven't figured it all out yet. I, I am struggling with my ending as well. It's oh. like this. Yeah. It's you like, seemed confident in it last time we talked about this. Well, I have the idea for it, but for some reason I'm really struggling to just wrap up so many loose ends. And maybe this is something that as I work on the second draft more, will kind of like naturally feel better. But right now it's just, I have the concept and <laughs> it's like you have the book and then it's very abrupt. So I need to sort of work up to it more. I need to switch some things around. Endings feel so consequential, like obviously, but it just feels like it has to be perfect. Well, there's nothing be- worse than, especially I notice this in romance books a lot where, you know, the couple is going to end up together. So there, it's not like who, who's the killer? Like, you know, that they're going to end up together. <laughs> and like it, at, you know, 80%, they like get in this stupid fight that feels not big enough or feels out of nowhere. And then, you know, you know that they're going to get back together. And like, I hate when books, you know, a book that I've really enjoyed all the way through, like kind of fizzles at the ending. Yeah. For me, I feel like the thriller ending is everything, right? Oh, so yeah. that that's why I'm really scared. And there are thrillers where you can see the ending coming and like it's still an enjoyable read, but it feels like a lot of pressure. Now, did you say where are you in, in the second draft? Like what percentage would you say are you through it? So I have read through it and made notes on every chapter about structural things that I need to change. Like, okay, this is this year is off or this conflicts with another part or I need to expand more on this. And so then I'm going to go through chapter by chapter and fix it. I don't know. It feels like nowhere. <laughs> so you're like in the note stage of your second draft. Yeah, yeah. Again, because I've spent so much time away from it, it's just become this big monster in my brain all year. But this is actually kind of inspiring me to go back to it. So maybe that's good. I know I've told you this in person, but I've actually found the editing process to be much more enjoyable and much easier to commit to than the first draft writing process, which I wasn't expecting. I was expecting to like find the editing process tedious the act of making something better as opposed to like just endlessly spewing shit out of your brain that you're like, I don't think this is very good it is really rewarding. And like consistency was one of my biggest issues in my first draft. I have pretty much without exception worked on it four days a week since the beginning of the year, at least. And some weeks I've worked on it seven days a week. So that's the key. That's the key right there. I found it to be much easier to commit to than I did the first draft process once I got into it. Yeah. The little bit I've done, I've been surprised at how I expected to hate everything, but I've actually been like, oh, good for you, Olivia. That's a nice sentence. <laughs> it changes day by day. Like so I've read through it a bunch of times and sometimes I'm like, this is good. And sometimes I'm like, this is awful. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I've been there as well. So what's next after you finish draft three? So I feel like I probably have a good two or three more drafts after this before it is ready to do anything with. I feel like a lot of where I'm trying to work is on more depth with characters. I think, I hope the plot is there, but it's like more depth with the characters and more specificity and things like that. And so I need to keep going through. What I have found is that my second draft took me, well, the 85% of my second draft that I did took me probably like four and a half months. And then the third draft has been much quicker. So I'm hoping that they will like iteratively get quicker as I go because less of it needs fixing. 
So we'll see. My intention, I'm trying not to give myself an out here, is after I finish this third draft is I'm going to share it with a few people. And I'm going to share it with, you know, not strangers. I'm sorry. I, podcast <laughs> listeners, none of you. But, you know, a few friends who are either big readers or writers themselves or, you know, in this industry. And I'm going to share it with a handful, like maybe five people to start getting some feedback and reactions to then guide where I spend more time on subsequent drafts. Sounds like a good plan. Where are you? What's your plan? Oh, gosh. My plan is just to move forward somehow. I did have an editor that I got in touch with for a different project, but she read through about maybe 15 or 20 pages. And that scared the living shit out of me. Like, it was so terrifying. But she was like, I can tell that, like, you have a good sense of plot. And I was like, I do? <laughs> like, oh, I'm going to write this on a sticky Honestly, note and put it on my brain. I feel like if anyone said anything nice, I don't know if I would be able to believe them right now. She was like, I can really tell you know what you're doing with, like, thriller pacing. I was like, really? <laughs> but even just that, I just keep replaying it in my brain. But like I said, recording this is making me feel motivated. I oh, also have just been very busy and it's just, it's hard when you have to do other things to make money. <laughs> it's very hard to find the energy. <sighs> so I know that you have a second book idea. We have talked about this one-on-one, I but I, I'm curious, like if you didn't sell this book, like I know we're talking about like, okay, we're going to do this, but you know, things happen. Would you still want to write a second one? Yeah. How would you feel? So I... <laughs> Originally, when I started this, I was like, this is a bucket list item. I have read enough and know enough people. Like, writing is a terrible profession. (laughs) And we'll talk more about the money when we bring in some of the professionals. But, like, it is not very lucrative based on the time and effort that goes into it. And, like, all but the very, very top. Like, you know, Elizabeth Gilbert's making money. But, like, I I think there's... You know, 98% of people are not making great money from writing. And and so I always, I was like, this is a this is an ego thing. This is something I've always wanted to do. But like, this isn't a career change. This is a detour. This is not like me fully changing paths. Sometime during writing this book, I got an idea for a second book that won't leave me alone. And so I think I'm going to write a second book. And up until probably like the last couple of weeks, I would have said to you, if this book didn't sell, fuck no, like I'm done because it's been so grueling. It's been so hard. I mean, first of all, a lot of people don't sell their first book. Like Emma Straub the other week was talking about it. I know Jasmine Guillory has talked about not selling her first book. A bunch of authors I've talked to privately have talked about having a first book that didn't sell. Kate Stamen London was talking on her stories the other day about a first book that she worked on for a really long time that didn't sell. I think it's really, really common. Really in the last two weeks, as I've had a lot of, a lot, a lot of doubt about my current project, I've been like, you know, I think I would write the second book no matter what, because something about me is like, well, I think I could do this better. What have I learned from this? And could I, could I make it better? And it's like, if I do it two hours a day and I actually stick with it, I'm like, I I think that, yeah, like, I think I would try to write a second book. I don't know. How do you feel? Good. I think I would too. Yeah. Because for like, I just have found nothing as enjoyable and painful. Don't get me wrong, but I've never felt more like myself than when I'm writing, writing fiction. Like it just, it feels so, yeah. Well, the th- the thing that I'm struggling with is that it, it's not that I would give up things creatively. It's just that I feel maybe more suited to writing scripts, like screenwriting. Like it's just so much easier than writing a book. Writing a book is so hard. 
And it's just, it's easier because it's less to hold in your brain mm-hmm. yeah. versus a book. But I, but I do think I want to get better at this and I would want to try again. I would cry first though, if this book didn't sell, like I would definitely have some phase of, of depression and anger. It's hard because I, on one hand, I've built myself up to be like, you're going to do this and it's going to be a personal accomplishment and you're going to write it and you're going to feel good about it no matter what happens. On the other hand, as you write, you kind of build it up to be like, people are going to love this. It's going to do so well. I'm going to publish a book. like, And so I have both of those things in my mind and I don't really know. Yeah. Like I know I would be disappointed, obviously, and nothing ever happens with it. But I'm trying to tell myself that it's still an accomplishment to just write it. I think that's true. And I think, at least on my case, I feel like I've learned so much that even just starting at page one on a second book, I would be in a better place to start from. Oh, yeah. I will read both your books. All of them. Thank you. You can be <laughs> one of the people who reads my book if you would like. I would feel comfortable with you with you reading it. Oh, you don't have to. A, that's such an honor. No, I would love to. I would love to. I feel okay. like we're like, we're trenches buddies a little bit. Like we're in the same class quote unquote, you know, of like doing this together. Like if this were high school, like we're both, we're both freshmen. Long before we started doing the podcast together, I should say. Yeah. 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 I feel like, I feel like we're going to be okay. I hope so. (laughs) I'm proud of us no matter what. (laughs) I'm starting to have a stomachache just like talking about this out loud. It feels so vulnerable. (laughs) I'm going through waves like, oh, Olivia, you can do this. And I'm like, oh my God. It's anyway. Oh, should we take an ad break? Yeah. Let me tell you about hair, which feels a lot (laughs) less stressful. (laughs) Let's take an ad break to talk about pros. So by now, you have probably heard me rave about pros, the world's most personalized hair care. But in case you haven't, welcome. I want to tell you about the incredible results I've been seeing with my customized pros products. And I actually just put in an order for a fresh bottle of my customized shampoo and conditioner this week. And Olivia got hers as we were recording. So next week, she'll tell you, or next ad, I can't remember when the next one is, she'll tell you about her reactions. But just so you know, they gave me my first bottle free. But since then, I've been a paying customer. Like, I've been paying for the past two years. That is how much I absolutely love this brand. So in the two years that I've been using Pros, I've seen such a massive and candidly somewhat unexpected improvement in my hair. Like, I just didn't think that it mattered that much. Like, I just thought that I had kind of crummy hair. And I didn't think that it could be changed. So I took the quiz and I told them that I wanted less frizz to go longer between washes and to overall improve my hair health. And it's done all of that. My hair is so much healthier. It's shinier. I feel like it's fuller. Like I have less breakage and less hair loss. And take this from somebody who has pretty lackluster hair to begin with. Like my hair is fine. It's on the thinner side. And I think the pros has made a huge difference because I haven't changed anything else. Pros has given over 1 million consultations with their in-depth hair quiz, which is how I got started. It takes five minutes. They ask you about everything from your hair type and your styling routine to some less expected questions, like about your diet and your exercise routine, and your zip codes that can take into account, like, the weather. By analyzing over 85 personal factors, Pros determines a unique blend of ingredients to treat your exact concerns. And I'm obsessed with the review and refine feature. So every time I get a new bottle, I get to tell them how they did and they make tweaks to improve my next bottle even more. So it literally gets better the longer I use it. 
And as a carbon-neutral certified B Corp, Pros is an industry leader in clean and responsible beauty, and they're also cruelty-free. And it's risk-free. If you're not 100% positive that Pros is the best hair care you've ever had, they'll take the products back, no questions asked. Pros is the healthy hair regimen with your name all over it. Take your free in-depth hair consultation and get 15% off your first order today. Go to pros.com slash B-O-P. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash B-O-P for your free in-depth hair consultation and 15% off. Let's talk about obsessions. What have you brought Oh my gosh. Today. So mine is, I guess, an updated obsession. So a couple of years ago, I talked about wanting to find cute white sneakers that I could wear with dresses that weren't like athletic sneakers. And I talked about the tree torn sneakers that I got. And I just bought a second pair um, because my old ones were getting kind of like dingy. And by accident, completely by accident, I actually bought them in leather instead of in canvas. So it's the Tree Torn Nylite original sneakers in white leather. And first of all, I think they look nicer in leather than in canvas. I wore these shoes all over London. I averaged 20,000 steps a day. Holy crap. Not a single blister. They were so comfortable. I'm really picky about sneakers with dresses. Like, I think I look stupid in a lot of sneaker dress combos, but I really like the way this looks with most dresses. So I am such a proponent of these. I'm also going to buy another pair in canvas because I think in like the hottest part of summer, leather might be a little too sweaty. So I'm going to get both. But like, I cannot recommend these shoes enough. They run true to size for me. Um, But like, I was shocked at how much I walked in London and how completely fine my feet were. I just Googled them. They're very cute. I also have the rain boots from this brand. Oh. that have like the shearling lining. I think it's faux, but not sure. Anyway, I got them at Costco. Impulse purchase, completely worth it a year later. So I can I can also vouch for the brand. I got these at Zappos. We'll link them in the show notes. And they're cheap. They're like, I don't know, what are, you're looking yeah. at like $69 or something? Yeah, they look like much more expensive than they actually are. Yeah, they're really and cheap. 20,000 steps a day is truly that's like Olympic level walking. I know. I, I, all I did in London was walk. <laughs> what about you? Uh, what is your obsession? <laughs> my obsession. Well, first of all, my new obsession is just putting random things in the show outline that Becca does not understand and just seeing how she'll interpret them. So the look on your face right now, reading. <laughs> well, this one could have gone either way. I wasn't sure if it was the idea of this or if this was like a show. Or if this was like something, but now I'm realizing that you're just trying to fuck with me. (laughs) Yeah. It really made me laugh as I was filling it out. Anyway, my obsession is darkness and the the concept of darkness, the concept of darkness Mm -hmm. and nighttime. Um, I, I knew that daylight lasted a long time in Iceland. I was not aware that when they say the sun sets at 1140, what they really mean is that the sun does not set. Like you get all the nice colors, but then it's just still bright out. And then the sun does not rise at 3.30 a.m. as it said on my weather app. It's just out the entire time. That's wild. I have never visited anywhere that is daylight the whole all the time. And I am very light sensitive as a sleeper. It did look like your, your blackout curtains. They were pretty good. But I would have a hard time with that. Not good enough. Let me tell you. It really, as someone that regularly goes to sleep at 8.30 p.m., it really screwed me up. And it made me appreciate nighttime. So... That's here's, my here's Olivia endorsing darkness. Have you tried going outside after 9 p.m.? It is great. 
have you tried darkness? Let me recommend. I was like, I could do another like clothing obsession, but why don't we go more conceptual for this? <laughs> Where do I buy it? <laughs> the good news is it's free. Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. Tell me about what you've been reading. Oh my God. I have feelings. I have feelings. Okay. So I bought like pretty much all the books that were featured on our summer reading episode last week. Some of them haven't come out yet, so they haven't arrived. But I I bought, I think there was only like two I didn't buy. I didn't buy the scary one that you recommended. And there was like another one that I didn't buy. So I'm working my way through. But the first one, I already had it. I read Every Summer After by Carly Fortune. Olivia, I have never gotten so close to making a real about a book because I just, I feel so strongly. I almost called you and it was like, hello, young person in my life. How do I make a reel? (laughs) I, oh my God, I I don't know how book talk works, but like I'm thinking of joining. I have feelings about this book. It's told in two timelines. The first timeline is told over six consecutive summers when the main character is 13 to 19. And the second timeline, she's an adult. She's Uh, in her early 30s, and it's told over the course of a single weekend. It's a first love story in the the original timeline, and it's a second chance love story in the adult timeline. It, It sat at a lake in Canada. It, like, ripped my heart out. I get this feeling about a book two or three times a year. Last night, I texted my friend Ashley, and I was like, I need you to read this book. And she's like, oh, there's a 25-week wait on the wait list at the library. And I just bought it for her. Like, I was like, I need everyone in my life to read this. I'm just going to start giving it to people. Like, watch your mailbox. I don't know. I'm obsessed. Oh, my gosh. I This is very high on my list now. It was already high. Now it's moved it, I'm up. obsessed. I'm obsessed. So in the full obsession stage with this, yeah. Second, I read Carrie Soto is Back by Taylor Jenkins Reid. So this is her new book. It comes out at the end of August. I did not realize, but apparently when the book publicist reached out about it, she sees the four, her four most recent books, including this one. So um, The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo, Daisy Jones and the Six, uh, Malibu Rising, and Carrie Soto is Back to be all part of a series about women in history. So this one's set in the 90s. They are all set in a different decade. And I might have skipped this one because I don't care about tennis at all. And I like didn't really care about the character who was a side character in Malibu Rising either. So I was, like, not interested, but when she pitched it as, like, a quartet, I was like, okay, I'll read it. And then I, I've i been, like, kind of flirting with a book club in real life and, and kind of going to my friend's book club, not every time, but, like, I've gone once and I think I'm going to go this month. And one of the girls in the book club was like, it was my favorite of her books. So it immediately shot up my list. I started reading it a couple of weeks ago. I didn't say it on the podcast, but I had COVID, and I was like in bed for a few days. And I started reading this and I read like the first 50 pages and I was like, I don't think I like this. And honestly, if my friend Ashley hadn't said that it was her favorite of the books, I would have DNF'd this, but I kept going. The first third of it, I don't know, like it needs to be there because it's all the backstory, but it's like, it's 37 years of backstory. It's like kind of light on plot. A lot of it is summarized action. It's not poorly written in any way, but it's like not that interesting, but you need it. And so the first third sucked. And then the second two thirds was 
incredible, incredible. And like, I don't care about tennis. I don't think I've ever watched a tennis match. I, yeah. So I read the plot of this one recently and I think I have like, I'm traumatized after reading Apples Never Fall. Did you read that? Mm -mm. It's all about this family who's obsessed with tennis. And I, it made me realize how much I don't care about tennis. And I was like, I don't either. I can't do another tennis book. I don't either. But there's like a really complex relationship between her and her dad. It's about a woman who was like the number one star in tennis. She's retired. She's been retired for the past like six years, maybe. And a new up-and-comer ties her record for a number of, of slams. And so she comes out of retirement at 38, which is like at that point in the 90s w- would have been like made her the oldest person to have ever won a slam. She comes back to reclaim her record. And so it's kind of like an underdog story where she was the number one person in tennis and, and now she's like coming back. I loved the story with her father. I loved the story of her and her rival. There's also a love story in it, which I which I loved as well. And the character is like deeply unlikable. Like she is so prickly that she's like kind of hard to root for, but you understand why. Like it's such a the book is fantastic. I on Tuesday basically was like at first fooling myself and I was like, I'm just gonna read one chapter. And like I ended up reading it all afternoon while I was supposed to be working. Wow. Would you say it's your favorite of her? No, Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo is still my favorite. Yeah, I, that's actually the only one I've read of her. And I think it's because I'm afraid to be disappointed. <laughs> the other ones are not disappointing, but that's that's a high bar for me. Yeah, it's, it's a very high bar. Well, that sounds great. Yeah, great reading. Tell me about yours. So I caved and read Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow by Gabrielle Zevin because Emma Schraub, recommended it in our interview then Ashley Spivey recommended it and it is it does have to do with video games as both of them mentioned and I am not just neutral by video games like I think I actively dislike them as a concept I don't know why and I feel the same actually yeah it's just like no but this was a beautiful book like it felt like a piece of art and I don't mean that like it was you know, too conceptual or like literary or snobby. It was really plot driven, but also character focused. It's a friendship story, as everyone has said on the podcast about two friends who meet when they're, I believe they're like 13, 12 or 13. And then they eventually start a company together, uh, make video games together. And it's just really beautiful. It's really beautiful. And yeah, I I loved it. This is very top of my list to check out because again, like I'm just so many people that I truly trust their taste, you included now, have recommended it. It's definitely worth the read. And then I started Love and Other Words by Christina Lauren because you have recommended it so highly. It's my favorite of theirs. <laughs> I'm only about 20% through, but I'll keep everyone updated. So far, I am I am oh. liking it. Well, if none of those strike your fancy, or I know two of those aren't out yet, we are discussing Cover Story by Susan Rigetti for our book club this month, which is, I don't know how to describe this. It is, it's a scammer book. It's about a college student who falls under the spell of this super scammer who's kind of a cross between Anna Delvey, Caroline Calloway, and Elizabeth Holmes, and gets sucked into her 
schemes. It's told in a really interesting way. It is told through diary entries and FBI records and and Slack messages and texts. If you have watched any of the scammer shows or documentaries, read this book. I promise you it is worth it for the ending alone. It is, I was beside myself. (laughs) It's, It's quite a plot twist. Quite a plot twist. That's what we've got for you. You can follow us on Instagram at Bad on Paper Podcast. You can join our Facebook group if you want to talk more about anything we talked about in this episode. I'm on Instagram at Becca M. Freeman. And I'm on Instagram at Olivia Mentor. And we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.